Hello everyone, my name is Ben. This is Justin, Will, and Sam. We're gonna be talking about Carthage and Rome. What's going on everybody? If you watched the last episode, even if you didn't watch the last episode, I'm Justin Woodcock, financial advisor and partner with On Point Financial Management. I wanna preface this by saying, much like these other fine gentlemen, I'm in no way, shape or form a historian, simply a student who also really enjoys history. Um, for a brief backstory, for those of you that may not know, we'll keep it extremely brief. Carthage itself as an entity, as a would-be empire, founded at some point in the 9th century BC, so we're throwing it way back. Um, founded by Queen Dido, uh, Flees Tyre, Tyre, excuse me, the city-state uh, <clears throat> over in the Levant, uh, flees the city after the, the death of her husband, uh, lands somewhere within the Gulf of Tunis, you know, founds the city of Carthage uh, on the Mediterranean. And from there, the rest is pretty much history. The city itself grows into an almost pseudo city state, begins to expand, uh, you know, develop itself in an economic sense, in a military sense, starts to dominate its neighbors. And by the time we reach the period that we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, or at least starting our conversation about the Punic Wars, they pretty much control, um, you know, east up to Ptolemaic Egypt, west pretty much to the Atlantic coast, you know, through Morocco and uh, the majority of Iberia and a couple islands in the Mediterranean. Which will be the flashpoint for the first Punic War. Indeed. Yep. Sicily is the, uh, the battleground and the point of contention between Rome and Carthage in this period. Um, yeah, definitely want to echo what Justin said. None of us are historians, uh, and so we uh, we don't have any reputations to be tarnished by our uh, our uneducated hearsay. But it is it is it is an awesome and interesting conversation that we're about to have. Um, Sam's uh, Sam's cameo guest joining us here today. He uh, he's got Carthage pulled up on Wikipedia. He's trying to do a little homework <laughs> while we're talking here. Um, Will, do you want to kind of get into the first Punic War, kind of like brief overview what happened? So Rome at this point has conquered most of Italy and the first Punic War is their first foray outside of the peninsula. And Carthage fought its wars with mercenaries and it were these mercenaries in Sicily that basically got bored and took over a city-state. And then once the city-state wanted them out, they appealed to Carthage for help. And then after Carthage helped them out of a bind, they didn't like the new arrangement that they had under the Carthaginians. So then they turned around and went to Rome and said, hey, can you get us out of this deal with Carthage? And that's how it all started. Yeah. And so, you know, Rome at this time is not Rome at its height of militaristic power. Uh, if I'm correct, this is still the Roman Republic, not the mm -hmm. Imperial Roman. Yep. Um, so the army hadn't gone through its reforms. Um, it hadn't, you know, adjusted its navy was not as good as the Carthaginians. Uh, at this time, Carthage probably had the most formidable navy in the world. And so basically you had, a, you know, the Italian peninsula as a dedicated land army um, city state and Carthage, which was basically a mercantil mercantilistic um, city state with a very formidable navy because they were so heavily invested in trade and they were fighting over an island. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's super important to to preface all this with before we even jump into that is Rome, you know, it's it's really important to know that Rome is not 
an empire by any means at this point. You know, within the last hundred years, give or take, they've <clears throat> had to battle the Etruscans for complete control of the peninsula. And pretty much they're just worried about consolidating their grip on Italy, um, you know, stamping out any other kind of resistance and then looking for new horizons. So by no means are they some kind of grand power uh, on the same level that Carthage would, could be considered because Carthage is going to have way more holdings. Um, you know, they are much more strong, I guess, economic in an economic sense. Let me take a brief pause here. Shout out New Horizons for <laughs> Collegians. I'm sorry, man. You, you, you said it, and I was like, there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Rome is by no means at this point, right before the first Punic War takes place, in really the position to compete economically or in a naval sense with Carthage whatsoever. Yeah, right. the next big conquest that Rome will have after the first Punic War will be in Illyria in their Balkan campaign. So they're not even at the Aegean Sea yet. They're almost entirely confined to the Italian peninsula itself. And the Roman army at the start of the first Punic, I'm sorry, the Roman navy at the start of the first Punic War is basically non-existent. And when they knew that they were going to be fighting with the Carthaginians in the open ocean, I'm sorry, in the water, they had no idea how to build ships. And rumor has it, they actually had to copy a design from a Carthaginian ship that washed ashore. Right. And I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit. Uh, one of Because again, one of the interesting things that Carthage was really, really good at was the shipbuilding. And uh, just like in today's present world, in the in the in the past, building a ship is not a project that is quickly completed. Um, you know, in current day, you know, you're building aircraft carriers, you're building destroyers, battleships. Those take years, sometimes decades, to complete, depending on your capabilities as a country. It didn't take quite as long to produce boats back then, but these boats were made out of wood and you couldn't necessarily just go and chop down trees and immediately turn it into a boat. You know, there's so much that goes into that, that like the Romans had to experience firsthand. And so the, the Carthaginians had been doing this for very, very, a very long time. And the Romans were new at it. And the Carthaginians had a ship that was significantly larger than the traditional ships of the day. It was called a quincurine, whereas most, uh, most other powers were using a trireme. Quincream just being larger and faster, had more rowers. Um, but essentially, Rome found one that got beached, and they took it back to Rome, and they took it apart, and they're like, all right, how do we build this? And then they cut down a bunch of trees and built a bunch of them, and they were really shitty from my French. But <laughs> they basically were able to effectively you know, turn the tides through sheer like production. And even though that navy fell apart a few years later, it was significant enough to be able to deal a blow that would, you know, turn the tide of the war. <clears throat> the support for the Carthaginian navy came from the fact that they were a mercantile civilization. And if you look at a map of the furthest extent that Carthage expanded, they stuck to the coasts. They didn't really do a whole lot of exploring inland, with Iberia being the main exception. And that's because yeah. of the Barkid family, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But Rome was not centered around its economy or trade it was built on conquest and in order to be eligible for the lowest political office in rome you had to have 10 years of military experience under your belt so where carthage colonized and established client states those client states would maintain their sort of national identity and if you compare that to what rome did they either destroyed them outright or absorbed and assimilated them and they all became one culture 100 percent. and so definitely like two different different powers with different different focuses um and you know a, a similar comparison i think could be made between like sparta and athens 
you know, just relatively similar time period, relatively similar regional powers at the time, uh, where they would grow to from that place. Because, you know, Sparta was so militaristic and Athens was very much involved in like, you know, the civil liberties and I don't think that's the right phrase, but they were, they were, they were interested in other things and it, it played into how their societies were structured. Sam, is there anything you want to chime in on that there, Chief? No, I was, I, I was over here pulling up what a, uh, uh, Quinquereen? Yeah, thank you. Well, Do you, uh, you got, you got a photo, a rendering of one? Anybody well, who's not... played Civilization. You're right. <clears throat> that's, that's fair, because that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. While we talk about the beginning of this conflict as well, I can't help but think about our previous episode when we're talking about uh, post-World War II Germany, uh, and it becomes very obvious, or I guess to the contemporary world it was not obvious, but um, Dan Carlin puts it perfectly when he says, you know, it should have been very obvious to an envoy of the Ottomans or someone from Western Europe, you know, three, four hundred years before that time, that it was obvious America and uh, the USSR were going to become enemies simply because of the power dynamic. And that's exactly what we have, uh, you know, right before the Punic Wars kick off here is when King Pyrrhus comes over from Macedonia and fights Rome and eventually leaves. And, you know, just like I said in the last video, he, he says, he exclaims as they're sailing away, you know, what a battlefield we're leaving for the Romans and for the Carthaginians. It was very obvious that, Rome was up and coming, they had huge ambitions, and Carthage was already well-established, extremely strong economy. It was, it was uh, practically inevitable that both of these powers were bound to clash. I also want to apologize, if my lights go off, the lights in my office are on a timer. The yeah, whole building's same. lights just went out. I know, I was like, oh. Um, no, man, it, it, you're exactly right. The, the, the conflict was you could you could see it growing in the distance and it was only a matter of time um and so you know the first the first punic war lasted close to 20 years maybe a little bit longer yep, about 20 years um yeah and it ended up with uh carthage losing its foothold on sicily the uh, closest island in between um italy and north africa um and, you know, basically there was a lull in the action between the two of them. And rather than focus on the Mediterranean islands, Carthage expanded along the coast of North Africa into Iberia. Um, and that kind of set up the, uh, the background for the second Punic War. Do you guys know how long there was in between the first and the second? The first Punic War was fought from 264 to 241 BC, and then the second Punic War was 218 to 201 BC. Yeah, so there was 23 years of, I don't want to say peace, because tensions were definitely high and conflicts did break out, but, you know, in like between war official sorts. war. <laughs> Of right. sorts, yeah. And, and this is going to be, oh, oh, sorry, Will, go ahead. During this time, in between the First and Second Punic War, that's when Hannibal is born. And that's when he takes his blood oath from his father to never be a friend of Rome. And this ex yeah. Carthaginian expansion into Iberia was not actually official. Um, <clears throat> because Carthage fought its wars with mercenaries, whereas Rome fought its wars with citizen soldiers, at the end of the First Punic War, because Carthage lost, it didn't have a way to pay the veterans of the First War. So, um, forget Hannibal's father's name, but Hannibal. he, 
Habsterville? Oh, Habsterville uh, is his brother. No, it's, 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 yeah. It's, it's Hamilcar? Hamilcar. Hamilcar? Okay. Hamilcar is the one that goes into Iberia and conquers out an unofficial empire for himself without the permission of the city fathers of Carthage. And it almost didn't work. But once he conquered the gold mines in Iberia and the money started rolling and they were like, okay, you know what? This is fine. And just just uh, Julius Caesar took notes on this, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then um, Rome kind of sees what Hamilcar is doing and they go, hey, you know, what's up? You got this army dangerously close. What are you doing over here? And he says, oh, I'm just conquering territory to pay you back for the reparations that we owe you, which is a really ballsy move, by the way, even though that's totally not what he was doing. And uh, there's this border, this river that served as the border that he agreed with the Romans. And there was a city on that border that would become the point of ignition for the Second Punic War. I think one thing that we can draw is throughout the intermediary periods between the first and the second Punic Wars and the second and the third Punic Wars, you know, not to jump ahead too much, but there is this kind of sense in Rome uh, that the senators and the citizens find themselves uh, experiencing in that they constantly defeat Carthage after years and years of bloodshed, um, you know, economic hardship and, and just death and despair. And Carthage refuses to simply give up. You know, uh, like we said, they were, they were an empire. They were around before Rome. So Carthage continues to bounce back, and the Romans see this. And this is a constant point of contention where Rome says, you know, what are you doing? You're not staying down after we kicked you. And Carthage says, you know, well, well, obviously, we're not going to do that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, wasn't it uh, Cato, the uh, Roman senator? You jumping ahead a little bit that's uh, towards well, the third period yeah, yeah. Yes. i was just gonna say though that that idea that carthage was punching above its weight but also a thorn in the side of the romans was a was a consistent thing until until their their demise uh, it was just it, it, rome knew that as long as carthage was around there would be a rival across the sea right so i mean moving forward obviously we have the first punic war ends rome be, finds itself in control of sicily basically the breadbasket of the mediterranean they're able to produce immense amounts of food carthage finds itself in a debt um, hamilcar takes his army into iberia uh conquers you know like will says gets control of the gold mines the money starts flowing finds himself meet an untimely end at the hands of an iberian tribesman and uh leaves hannibal his extremely capable son at the age of, I want to say, 26, in control of the entire army. And so you're left with a young man who is not only a strategic genius, but ambitious, and on top of that is bolstered by an absolute, like Will said, just blood oath to hate Rome to the day he dies. So he finds himself in control of an army, fighting for his homeland of Carthage uh, in Iberia, with money coming in and decides, you know, maybe it's time to take this battle to the Romans. I got like Batman and Alexander the Great vibes from that, that, uh, that preface to Hannibal's career. <laughs> <laughs> this man's got the money, the skills, the training and the motive. <laughs> We're going to talk peace more was never about an option. Hannibal's hate. No, peace was never later. an option. His well, Hannibal's, yeah. Hannibal's, what, Will? Hannibal's hatred for Rome extended so much to the extent that we'll talk about it later. And I will argue the point that it is the nature and the intensity of his hatred. And that's why Rome exists today. 
why it existed after the fact to do the things that it did. That's a, uh, a titillating topic to be had. Um, so yeah, I mean, going forward from Justin, uh, his excellent summary, like basically at that point, Hannibal <laughs> pulled a, what's called a pro gamer move. <laughs> and uh, he knew they couldn't go back to Carthage and go across the Mediterranean. Uh, that Rome's navy was sufficient to make that not the ideal situation. It's not necessarily to say that Carthage couldn't have won that fight, but it wasn't it wasn't as advantageous. And so Hannibal set his sights on a land. I don't know what the word. Um, land basically, he want. There we go. And I don't uh, want to cut you off, Ben. I do just want to say that Hannibal's choice to go on land was obviously the safer bet not to say that the carthaginians could not have won at sea however they're simply better sailors and the romans were better soldiers so during the first punic war after years of conflict rome says you know we're getting destroyed on boats because we're fighting like sailors maybe we can figure out how to turn a naval battle into a land battle um you know they basically start grappling with Carthaginian ships and boarding them, you know, turning them into a terrestrial battlefield. Uh, and that's right. kind of what helps influence Hannibal in saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't because if we have to fight the, the Romans at sea, we're practically fighting them on land anyways. Right. And now you're risking your Navy and your army. And so, you know, there's, there, there's a good deal of land in between Spain and Italy, but there's also a, uh, something of a good defense known as the Swiss Alps and the uh, Italian Alps. And, uh, you know, up until Hannibal's decision to cross the Alps, it was kind of considered like a safety net, like just this almost impassable, you know, you know, maybe, maybe a small group of people could go over the Alps, but you couldn't get an army through the Alps. And much so less at the beginning of winter, right. Much less with elephants. Uh, and so what Hannibal was able to do and how he did it was, you know, one of these great things where like we, we need to take a step back and appreciate the determination, but also the ability of man to, in this case, literally move mountains to achieve their goal. And uh, Justin, are you are you at all familiar with what they had to do to like clear apart parts of the mountains? Yeah, so. Honestly, it's sort of ingenious, and please step in at, at any moment if I'm saying this incorrectly, but keep in mind, Hannibal is crossing the Alps with, you know, 80,000 men, 22 elephants, um, a baggage train, you know, tons of goods, which I will say this is a slight deviation, but there's a Roman quote that I'm paraphrasing where a good commander focuses on battle tactics and a great commander focuses on logistics. So you could almost say that Hannibal takes a, a, a note from the Roman book in this sense where he really pays um, attention to his logistics in order to make sure he's going to be able to cross the mountains correctly. But anyways, they find themselves in the Alps. And uh, basically what they do is when they come into these uh, impassable rocks, they will get a bunch of wood, throw it up against the rock and light it all on fire so the rock becomes superheated. And at this point, um, they, they cover it in olive oil. Am I correct? I, olive oil and I think boiling vinegar. Boiling vinegar. So you cover the rock in oil and then directly after that, you throw vinegar on it and it practically causes the rock formation to shatter. And anything that's not shattered, uh, Hannibal's soldiers were able to just take picks to, hammers to, and simply quite literally move mountains and chisel their way through. 
Right. And, it, you know, it, it was one of these situations where like the only other example is, you know, like Westward expansion with the railroads in like the 18th century to where we're seeing like, you know, manpower, hard work and explosives being used to clear and cut holes through mountains. Like, you know, again, like we take for granted what we have now with power tools and with machinery, but like some of the stuff they were able to achieve with like their hands and tools, like, again, like we just, we, we don't have the right frame of mind for like what, like, you know, if you give 80,000 people pickaxes and, you know, axes, can you clear a forest in a week? You can clear a forest in, you know, when, when Hannibal crosses the Rhine river in France, for example, you know, they, they cross in a matter of five or six days. So they, they cut enough trees down, craft enough rafts, not only for soldiers, but for supplies and for elephants and horses. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I want to weigh in on that. I, I, uh, that was my next step. I, uh, as, as, impressive as going through the mountains is for me crossing the was it the rhine river yeah the rhine um crossing the rhine river in a week two weeks you know with eighty thousand people with nothing like he he showed up and leveled forest and created rafts and the way that he made these rafts because he had to get his elephants across he had to make rafts large enough that they could support the weight and the unpredictability of elephants but then covered them in dirt and sticks and leaves to the point where the elephants did not understand that they were not on solid ground. And all the while, like the Rhine river is not some benign, slow moving docile river. You know, this was, this was a technological feat that Julius Caesar would try and beat, you know, hundreds of years later when, you know, he, he crossed it. You know, gentlemen, we should probably step in here and say the Rhone, the Rhone, the Rhone. river, the Rhine river is in Germany. Um, obviously at this point it is not Germany. It's simply run by Germanic tribes, but the Rhone river in France is the river he, he crosses. Justin's right. It's nine 15. I'm tired. It is the Rhone river. <laughs> can y'all see my screen? You can see, you your, can see your face. Uh, been disabled it. I had oh, a, uh, there we go. Yeah. Look at that. 1878 uh, drawing. So not quite as accurate with, uh, them being covered in leaves and sticks, but it is in fact the Rhone river. And um, yeah, shout out to Wikipedia for being incredible. Right. Yeah, amateur <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> historian's best friend, right there. Right, hang on, but talk okay, because I know nothing. I knew nothing about this. Talk to me about the fact that this man had battle elephants. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll start, but Will or Justin, if you guys want to weigh in, like basically, Carthage is an empire that is based out of modern day northern Africa, and when their army got into Rome, you know, they brought with them anybody and everybody that they could pay to bring along. And so when, whether that was people with battle elephants, Numidian cavalry, you know, they had Iberian slingers. I think there was over 2000 dudes mm -hmm. with like slingshots, mm -hmm. but the, apparently the Spanish slingshot guys were deadly because, <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things where, Rome had their citizen soldiers and they had their way of doing combat and Carthage, you know, was very almost Persian and like, Hey, with money, we can just pay you to do this for us. What are you good at? Oh, you throw spears. Okay, cool. Come do that for us. You know, and they would hire the Greeks out constantly because the Greeks were well-renowned for being effective soldiers. And so, you know, battle, like, you know, 22 elephants is a lot, but it's not like, a life-changing amount but in the italian peninsula that's no joke nobody's ever seen that 
I want to throw this is giving me um in Will's court, but you know, to to talk about the the battle elephants, but I do want to say. Ben, when you talk about them hiring out the Greeks, um, that is super important after Hannibal dies and obviously in the defense of, uh, you know, Carthage during the Third Punic War, it's his brother defending. But there is a notorious Spartan commander that they hire as well to help defend the city, to basically help rally their troops and train them the best they can. So just to backtrack a little bit. Yeah. When... Hannibal successfully crosses the Alps with what remains of his force, which 75% of his army did not survive the journey, by the way. The first conflict that the Romans have, when they see elephants for the first time, this is the closest thing that we can get to documented history of men fighting monsters. Because if you are a well-traveled Roman, you've gone up and down the Italian peninsula, and that's it. And then you see something that you've never even heard about much less never seen before and there's 22 of them riding towards you and you have a short sword and a spear have you seen lord of the rings or I, I was gonna say. yeah yeah so pull, pull up that one <laughs> right this is giving me uh battle of pelinor really fields yeah lord yeah of the rings vibes so well sam oh no oh sorry ben so, sam pretty much you know what will says is I mean, that's spot on, man. The Romans have absolutely no idea. And Hannibal, I mean, as long as these elephants are alive, he will continue to utilize them. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) He will continue to utilize them to absolutely strike fear in the hearts of the Romans. And it's not until uh, Scipio Africanus takes the Romans to the shores of Carthage at the Battle of Zama that they finally display uh, a battle tactic which is able to defeat the elephants. We're pretty much they open up their lines when the elephants are charging and, you know, you can't get an elephant to turn on a dime. So, you know, for the 18 years that Hannibal is basically rampaging around Italy, uh, these elephants are just smacking the Roman legions until they can finally figure out, Hey, if we just open our lines and let them in, then we can spear them. You know, we can stab them. We can knock out the riders, whatever, but they were extremely effective. How did they bring them down? I actually have no idea. Millions yeah. of errors. Are, are there are there any sources on this? Because I'm like I'm, let let me work some Google magic over here. <clears throat> All right, Sam, dig into it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, one of, like we we kind of almost glossed over it, but you know, Rome kind of got caught with its pants down when Hannibal emerged from the Alps with you know even even a quarter of his initial departing force. You know, I think he was able to muster and gather a few a uh, few new volunteers and. Um, conscripts and you know by the first couple of engagements with roman military in rome you know he had a he had an army of 50 ish thousand men which you know is no joke but when coming up against you know a roman army of close to a hundred thousand like you know they were definitely in a position where even though rome was caught by surprise they were able to mobilize a force almost double the size in very little time and I think that really speaks to like the state of preparedness and just the the difference in culture between like mobilization and you know subcontracting for a better term. <laughs> a lot of the people that Hannibal recruited once he was in Rome were actually Celts that were fighting for the Romans at the beginning. And then they see Hannibal win the first battle after he crosses the Alps and they're like, Oh, you know, maybe this guy actually has a shot because they weren't big fans of Rome to begin with. And once they defect, then that will double the size of Hannibal's army to the 50,000 that Ben mentioned. Julius Caesar doesn't forget about those selves. That, uh... No, Julius Caesar <laughs> is taking notes from the metaphorical womb at this point. Right, um, 100%. Really, the uh, only problem that Hannibal runs into is the simple fact that he can't take cities. 
Uh, I mean, the Romans cannot face him in the field. He's a tactical genius. He's a strategic genius. He rampages through their fields. He eats off the land. um, And they basically rape and pillage the entire Roman countryside until, I mean, until they have to go home. And they only have to go home because Scipio Africanus, who you could draw comparisons, you know, with, with he fights with his father and his brother in Iberia, so kind of has a similar upbringing to Hannibal fighting the Romans, except in this case he's fighting the Carthaginians, has this uh, inbred hatred, if you will, until he shows up at uh, in North Africa. And Hannibal says, I guess I have no choice. You know, I've been recalled. I have to defend the city. Yeah. One of so, the uh, – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Sam. Oh, no, I was going to uh, – back to answering how they defeated the elephants okay. before we left. Um, so it looks like, uh, one, Will was right, lots of javelins. Um, but they started equipping ox-drawn wagons with long spikes to wound the elephants and then pots of fire to scare them. So they'd open up their ranks. Mm-hmm. They would run the uh, – the Oxtron wagons by them and scare the crap out of them with fire and then just literally stab them to death with all the javelins. So very Lord wasn't, of the Rings-esque. Wasn't there a group of people that caught pigs on fire to frighten yeah. that all of them? <laughs> that, that was another one. I wasn't sure how reliable that was. But yeah, so this is a reading. Mobile um, bacon, wrote, baby. Yep. Oh, I'm flaming <laughs> pigs to battlefield maneuvers. Um, no, they, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you did everything they could to, just come to scare the elephants. Yeah, you got you got to think outside the box when you're fighting uh, elephants for sure. Could you imagine a war out like multiple war elephants running wild, scared through a pitch battle like this? Probably causing more know. damage than they were in a controlled setting. Right, hundred percent. Yeah. We're in the 21st century, and I can't imagine going up to uh, like going to war against an elephant, and we have guns. <laughs> yeah, dude, you better not like, miss. <laughs> <laughs> around and it's find gonna out take somebody out at least some recoilless right. rifles for sure yeah even then dude um no i mean it, it's definitely you know and when you equip these things with armor and you know people around them to bolster the effectiveness absolutely incredible battle tactics one of the one of the things that actually got me very excited about this podcast was will brought up what is the likelihood that two of the great military generals would be born in the same time period and would be would be enemies and so obviously hannibal the great is probably arguably the more the more publicly known general but uh the roman general and i don't want to mispronounce his name that uh brings the fight to hannibal in in north africa you know we still use and study him for battle tactics as well um hannibal uh i want to backtrack a little bit to the battle of Cannae. Kenny, Kane, are, both are acceptable pronunciations. Mm-hmm. And the Roman general that you're speak. thinking of is Scipio Africanus, mm-hmm. who okay, yep. uh, actually acquired his namesake through his military victories in North Africa right. during the First Punic War. That's entirely yeah. correct. Um, it hurts being the silliest and most foolish person on this podcast. Uh, uh, you by far are not. I'm on the podcast. It's the whole reason I'm sorry. We can you kick you out at any time, Sam. <laughs> and nothing will, nothing about the podcast will change. Watch this. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. That was cool. Uh, Look, my, yeah. my configuration's all messed up here. I don't know. Uh, no, Where, I, ben, I where's your oversight, bro? <laughs> here, wait, wait, I, I can fix this. Uh... Okay. Oh fuck. Add the stream. 
<laughs> Damn. Okay, we're 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 right. out of luck, boys. <laughs> I'll take this chance to 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 put forth my argument that while Hannibal is in Italy, after he crosses the Alps, there are no Roman legions between him and Rome, and Correct. this is like the real acid test of the Roman mentality when they realize that there is a Carthaginian army right there and there's nothing to stop them from laying siege to Rome itself. And I think Hannibal, Hannibal, how do I put this? He chose not to attack Rome because of his hatred for the polity in itself. He wanted to do the equivalent of take out its eyes, cut off its nose, ears, tongue, arms, and legs. He still wanted Rome to exist, but in an extremely handicapped and infantile state yeah and i mean it was one of these situations where you know this is this is what this is kind of the foundation of the podcast is like you know we're going to start exploring shortly like in a theoretical world that hannibal does to rome what rome does to carthage after the third punic war you know what does society look like like this was like you know, probably the best shot anyone had before those uh, nomadic tribes like sack Rome hundreds of years later, like this was their shot. And, you know, even his generals underneath of him were conflicted with whether or not they should just go and besiege Rome. But realistically, the way that the Carthaginian army was constructed, you know, everyone being mercenaries, like, you know, mercenaries are happy to keep fighting for you if you keep paying them. But if you're camping them outside of a city where it's miserable, it's cold, and they're getting shot at with bows and arrows, and all of a sudden you're not sacking towns and getting gold, like you don't have a, a you know you don't have a military made up of people that want to be there because they believe in the cause, and that I think that was part of the issue that Carthage suffered from that I don't know gets enough attention where like you know the Romans would not capitulate like multiple times Hannibal tried to parlay peace. And they were like, nope, we're going to we're going to get you one day. And, you know, 18 years later, whatever the heck it was, they were like, all right, we've, we've rolled up our sleeves. We've made some changes. Let's go again. To touch on what both of you said, you know, well, I think what you said at the beginning of the podcast is absolutely spot on when you said that Hannibal arguably is part of the reason that Rome is the way it is. Um, and if you think about everything that he did, you know, not just ravaging the countryside, but if we look at, you know, the Battle of Cannae, Cannae uh, and you have 70,000 Roman soldiers dead in a day, not necessarily uh, on a size scale, but the Romans will not see a serious strategic defeat like that until the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, you know, at the hands of the Germanic tribes. So this is their first, you know, serious defeat. And so it shows them, one, we are not untouchable, which after you know this whole showdown with the punic wars they will exit the wars with the mentality of we are untouchable but at the same time ben to what you said hannibal attempts to you know parlay for peace and they continue to say no they continue to defy and they refuse to surrender uh you know maybe at some point they acknowledge that hannibal is incapable of actually taking a city um but the lasting effect that hannibal and the carthaginians have on the roman psyche you know we have you know, when your kids are being unruly and they won't go to sleep, you know, the boogeyman's under your bed. They're going to get you in Latin. The Romans have the term, you know, Hannibal is at the gates for unruly children. You know, it's for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's acknowledged that this is the closest that Rome seriously came to utter destruction. And they emerge from this almost an entirely different empire. 
an, an empire all on its own, I should say, because they were not an empire before this. Empire yeah, with a lowercase no. e. Right. 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 Um, yeah. And so, I mean, you know, I, I kind of want to touch on Kanae just a little bit more, just again, like from a, from a perspective, um, you know, s conservatively, 60 or 70,000 Romans died in a day. And, you know, that was potentially one of the bloodiest days in human history. And, you know, realistically, still one of the bloodiest days in human history. Um, I saw a comparison of, you know, that was like uh, one of the initial days of losses during the uh, Battle of the Somme in World War One, where like, you know, wave after wave of British and German soldiers ran into machine gun fire. And you start like trying to wrap your head around like hand to hand combat, 60 to 70,000 people dying just in Romans in a day. You know, we were doing calculations of liters to blood to gallon. That's like 80,000 gallons of blood being spilled in a day. And so, you know, war today is horrible, but it's somehow more humane to like, you know, from me to you shoot someone rather than to be like, you know yeah like i gotta look you in the eyes and well not only do i have to look you in the eyes you but by hand i mean like tens of thousands of gallons of blood you could walk through that field after we're done and you could just imagine the blood just squishing up around your ankles because it would be just oh. soaked mm -hmm. and 100%. this like ben said this happened over the course of an entire day so two armies spent the better part of an afternoon just butchering each other and it's like, it's something that's so out of the realm of our experience in the place and the time that we live in today that we can't, like, we can talk about it casually, but to right. actually well, be there and know so what they went through. To the guy who knows nothing, like, as you're, as you're saying this, like trying to conceptualize, like, all right, like, okay, you hear gallons of blood and you're like, okay, great. But then like actually thinking about, all right, it was just raining here and how it feels when the ground is soaked and you're walking in mud and it's puddly and you're like the ground squishing underneath you but imagine that actually being blood and the fact that that came from hand-to-hand -hand combat or sword to sword combat not just like, even with gunfire right imagine that is like insane and then you think about the fact that it's hand-to-hand -hand combat and that the ground is so that soaked with blood is wild right. Yeah, I mean, I just did some very basic math. If the battle lasted 12 hours, that's just shy of 6,000 people an hour dying, just in Roman numbers. And mm. again, this, this was an example where Hannibal's strategic genius shone through. And even though outnumbered, he was able to encircle a much larger force and continuously push them into each other to the point where Romans were getting just crushed by one another, trying to find a spot where they weren't getting you know surrounded and stabbed. So, you know, truly a, a gifted general that had an unbelievable run up until the Battle of Zama, where he was uh, defeated. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that kind of is like a, the end of the Second Punic War is when Hannibal returns home and faces the uh, Scipio Africanus in, in Tunisia, the capital you know, area of modern day Tunisia. But, and he loses that conflict. I want to take this time to do a short summary and jump ahead and pose a question to you three gentlemen. Um, you know, the Second Punic War ends. Uh, Rome basically levies these astronomical terms on Carthage, much akin to 
um, World War One referendum. The, the Entente did to Germany, you know, uh, with the Treaty of Versailles. Basically, there's astronomical numbers that they need to repay in reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they are not allowed to defend themselves against armed, uh, against uh, armed incursions, which eventually will. Uh, become a point of contention as the Numidians, the Carthaginians' former cavalrymen, uh, begin encroaching on their territory and taking things from them. But anyways, Second Punic War ends. Hannibal dies in self-imposed exile in Anatolia. Uh, their entire empire is crippled. Cato, like you said earlier, you know, comes to Carthage on a diplomatic mission, comes back and says, we need to burn this place to the ground. They show up to Carthage, uh, and not to, to fast forward or anything. Maybe it's exaggeration. Maybe it's not. They burn the entire city down and they till the land with salt. Okay. I want to pose the question and obviously we can revisit what happens in the third Punic Wars. I, I summarized because it's quite short and you know pretty brisk, but what do you three think would have happened had the scenarios been switched? And it's not simply Rome capitulating to Hannibal and becoming a client state. It's it's Hannibal, you know, coming back from a diplomatic mission or, you know, what have you, any other Carthaginian general saying the Romans will continue to rebuild. They will continue to rival us. You know, we have to put them down once and for all. And they go to Rome. They sack it. They don't just sack it. They burn it down. There is no Rome, much like there is no Carthage. What does the Mediterranean look like? What does antiquity look like? And what does that mean as we, you know, move past zero and start to move into more modern times? There wouldn't be a zero because Christianity wouldn't exist. Okay. And a map of Europe would be centered on North Africa and Italy instead of Europe as a whole. That's a perspective shift right there. That is for sure. I have not even considered that. Sam, what do you think? I want, can you repeat what you just said? Because I'm just trying to conceptualize that one. A map of Europe, if mm-hmm. Rome didn't exist, would be centered on North Africa, Italy, and Spain. And Christianity would not exist. And if we think the about Christ- that last point. Yeah, that the, the map was the thing I was thinking of. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Do we um, think Carthage does what Rome does? Do we think Carthage... Uh, goes to Britannia, do they go to the Levant? Do they fight Persia? Do they conquer Egypt? Do they, do they conquer the Balkans? Nope. They no. trade instead. They don't conquer, yeah. and they leave the indigenous tribes people basically to their own their own agendas. Yeah. Europe, I, uh... would, Europe would be pagan for probably another thousand years until some unknown great conqueror that was never given the chance to born comes up and unifies yeah. Europe. Sam, leave, leave, leave it right there for a second. Yep. Yeah. I mean, what an interesting like shift, you know, if there's, if there's no Roman empire to prosecute Jesus, like, you know, does, does Judaism continue as where it's at or does, does Christianity ever get off the ground? Um, yeah, I agree with Will a hundred percent. I don't believe that Carthage continues to expand. Um, you know, they do have colonies. Carthage was big on like setting up colonies, but it was never for the, for the purpose of, you know, militaristically adding to their empire as much as it was saying, Hey, this is an awesome spot to launch our trade ships from. How can we, you know, leverage a relationship with the people who live here to be mutually beneficial or, you know, pay their neighbors to keep fighting to the point where they're not a threat to us. And so, you know, no, sorry, no finish, please. 
Um, yeah, I was, I was just going to say like the problem Rome let, ran into much later in its history, like after Caesar is Rome did not want to continuously expand. What, what Rome's goal was, was to have Roman territory and then pseudo-Roman territory that would act as a buffer between it and all of the nomadic, barbaric, barbaric tribes beyond them. But what would continuously happen is those buffer zones would become more and more Roman to the point where like, all right, well now, you know, very Northern Italy, you know, modern day France is part of the Roman empire. Now we need to, you know, capture the next area and the next area. And now we need to go to the UK because we have a, col a colony here, but there's these crazy dudes with, you know, plaid coming after us. I'm going to step away for one second. I want to leave you with another question is what does the, the ancient world look like with the dominant power exercising sort of, I don't want to call it like pseudo capitalism, I guess you could, but basically being founded on the principles of mercantilism, trade, economics, you know, what does that look like with Carthage on top in terms of what kind of impression does that leave on the surrounding territories versus the Romans ruling through authoritarianism and seriously setting up an empire? Well, can I ask a follow-up question to that? Sure. Is what yes. um, what does technology start to look like if Rome is wiped out and but you have, like you said, mercantilism and not conquering these different these different areas happening? What does technology end up looking like for the of the day? Not Ben. Today, I think you're more but... qualified to answer this one. You want to tell us a little bit about what Carthage was like before it was destroyed? Maybe we can extrapolate yeah. from there. Um, so what I will tell you, uh, that I understand to be true, well, pre precursor, uh, cop out there. Um, so Carthage was able to do a lot of things that would not be possible again until after the Renaissance. Um, Carthage as a city had at the time, the most advanced and intri intricate port in the world, the, uh, the actual Harbor of Carthage. Uh, was the biggest and most advanced in the world at that time. And it was an awesome, like what, what it was built and how it was built was awesome. Um, but like, you know, they had apartment buildings in Carthage with running water, like heated running water to the point where people could take showers. Um, you know, they, they were able to figure out a way to use wood to Go cut ahead. perfect limes and uh, perfect lines and limestone and transport it into the ocean, crack it, break it into perfect square blocks and transport it home. And so again, like screen human, quick. share this screen. Yeah, this is a, this is a rendering of like what, what it would have been believed to look like. Obviously I think this is actually like empire war or whatever, but no, I mean, yeah, this there's, is there's, historically what is a couple what it was expected it's pretty insane. Uh, and so the outer ring, I don't know if you guys can see my mouse, but this first ring is for all of the mer merchant ships that would come in and the second ring could hold, I think, up to 240 quincoreams, which again were the best and fastest and most dangerous warship uh, on the Mediterranean. And so again, Carthage was a naval power, not a land power. They didn't have a standing army, but their navy was unbelievably advanced. Um, so I mean, with that, you know, to my understanding, and if I had to say, you know, what I thought. Carthage had a very similar approach to Persia during like the reign of like Darius the Great and his successors, where 
it wasn't so much be a part of our empire as how can we work together? Okay, you're cool doing that. As long as you don't attack us, as long as you're loyal to us, as long as you continue to trade with us, keep doing your thing. For me, if there's no fall of Rome, there's no dark ages. I don't know if you guys want to weigh in on that, but if, if I will, if, if, if the center, if the center of society, as we know it, doesn't get demolished, but instead that, that knowledge and, you know, that trade continues to subsist and the, you know, the modern day Arabic powers continue to invest in, you know, astrology, geometry, and like, you know, discovering coffee, you know, I think technology West. might actually have been better. And I think the heart of the Renaissance would have occurred in Africa. Ooh. Arguably, I don't want to say it started there, but it found its footing there under 100%. the actual uh, Renaissance or the hypothetical one we're discussing. The hypoth uh, uh, Choose so. your words carefully, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that is a really interesting take. I would say the real one, yes. Um, and I don't mean the serious Renaissance, you know, not in the European sense that we think about with this cultural explosion and all these innovative inventions and, and sorry, that was a little redundant innovative inventions. Um, but, you know, we see it in the Arabic world um, with the emergence of uh, a Muslim empire, basically, or, or under the, the various caliphates where medicine is seriously improved. Um, science is serious time. Is 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 the Islamic faith valid without Jesus Christ? Without without like you know, the 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 Christian struggle? I would say yes. Ooh, yeah, yeah it's well, still well, an so Abrahamic religion, but it would have existed in the, independently. Jesus is a figure in the Islamic Quran. Oh, yeah. So that's that's my only question: is if you know a, a, a important character is all of a sudden left out, does that change? I don't know. Like that, that was just my curiosity. Like, I think Islam is still valid. And not only that, if I'm just going to, you know, take a serious segue here, I think if Carthage is still around uh, after the foundation of Islam in 628, you know, after the Prophet Muhammad founds the very first caliphate, I think under the principles of Dar al Islam, Carthage is steamrolled uh, by Islamic jihad. Absolutely. Because they go through North Africa, anyways. So if Carthage is still around, you know, they crush Rome, they are trading like crazy. I absolutely think the Muslims come through and crush them. I'll build on Justin's point. When the when the Muslims split the world in two in the 800s AD, that would probably be the first serious challenge to this hypothetical Carthaginian power that would persist for, what would that be, 1500 years? Yeah, founded in 9th century BC. I mean, they've been around for a while at that point. So. that's insane to think about like can you imagine like fudge dude yeah 1500 when, years of consistent rule like what's and the all closest of these, and all of these uh like tribes and countries whatever you want to call them are trading the entire time they're exchanging ideas inventions i mean there probably wouldn't be like a singular point of renaissance like we were talking about it would probably just it would happen arguably right after a Carthaginian victory, if they won the third Punic War, but continued to but still lost the first two, 
I mean, if Carthage won the first Punic War and then Rome was just on the downhill after that point, I mean, we would probably see just a significant increase in technology and innovation, ideas, art, and literature from that point onward. And there's nobody here that's credible enough to say when that would stop. Can, can we see this sorry, illustrated? I'm sorry. No, 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 go, go ahead. Can we see this illustrated um, Marvel What If style? Like at the watch or what if I I I'd be never defeated. That. That'd be, that'd that'd be, be fantastic. I think uh one thing we're not or hasn't been mentioned yet is if Carthage wins the Punic Wars and Rome goes downhill before they switch from a republic to an empire, and Julius Caesar never gets to capitalize on his notes, we see no Byzantine Empire, we see no foundation of Constantinople, and we see no serious power in anatolia before once again the arabic powers and you know like king henry the eighth can't like kill all his wives because he can't get divorced like what are we going to do without that story i'm sure some barbarian <laughs> king would do something just like that well yeah so I mean, when, no, I mean, this, go ahead. when would the americas be discovered i think much sooner i agree with ben much sooner but how sooner though because the atlantic ocean is no mediterranean for sure it's no mediterranean but carthaginian sailors were already sailing to like modern day norway i believe or at least denmark yeah but like they're, they, they're... they were able to sail there because they could keep europe in sight they could just sail along the coast if you have to sail on the open true. ocean i mean they i mean i mean dare i say it probably would be asia to get there first Could have been anyways. We don't know. <laughs> we don't. I mean, this this is all conjecture at this point. You know, like right. there's oh I got I got one for you. Another fun topic. What if what if uh when uh European nations got to the, the Americas, no diseases were spread. Oh, we're just gonna we're just gonna completely No no like th that's 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 another topic for another day, but could you imagine like you know it's theoretically that 98% of all life in both Americas was wiped out by disease before Europeans began to colonize, like, you know, in initial steps, like, could you imagine if, you know, every tribe we encountered had 98% higher population, 98% more warriors, 98% more, you know, just, could you well, imagine like, when that would make colonization very different. Yeah, when Hakatas was fighting the Aztecs, they were rumored to field armies that numbered well over a hundred thousand. But these were also a yeah, hundred thousand soldiers fighting with wooden weapons. Well, not not just wooden weapons. Well, yeah. basically, these are people that you could. They did not invest in the, in the tech tree when they were playing. City. <laughs> <laughs> they were advanced in other ways, you know, city building, right. well, uh, agricultural again, means, irrigation, things like Kevin that. Peach Clan was the biggest city in the world before it was destroyed. You know, arguably, like there, there was an argument that China was as large in population, but you know, it was a far cry between China, Tenochtitlan, Clan, and whatever was third. You know, so interesting. Back to what we were talking about, though. So, a question from the from the the guy who knows nothing about geography or history here, although I do like both. Um, if you've got more trading going on and more uh, scientific advancement. And more, you said with the mercantilism, there was more investment into astrology, geometry, 
do it does the astrology play a role into dispelling the myth at the time that the the i guess the european myth that the earth is flat and do they dare sail across the atlantic sooner to see what's on the other side well the ancient greeks knew that the earth wasn't flat because they could watch their ships sail under the horizon once it reached that certain point but they could have known that the earth was spherical but they wouldn't have any reason to explore out until they had the technology and the ambition to do so because if carthage is able to monopolize europe's economy and trade with the pagan european powers like the germans and the celts then they really wouldn't have any reason to go across the ocean and find out whether or not there was actually something there because as impressive as the quarrying was it can't survive atlantic waves it would capsize instantly unless you are blessed with perfect weather for how many months or how many months it would take to get there right and another important thing is these 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 boats were primarily manpowered like they had sails but it was it was a secondary form of propulsion and so you know it was it was a different level of design uh, one thing that you kind of brought up that, yeah, I I don't think it's interesting because, you know, very quickly in the Arabic empires that sprung up, like they knew and their, their math, their science, their understanding, their medicine was far beyond what Europe had in, in the reality of history, especially in that time. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But one of the big ones is like Europe you know, got such a societal regression from the fall of Rome and like the, the aftershocks of that. Whereas, you know, life blossomed for a while elsewhere, especially in that Arabic and North African realm. So definitely interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we, it, it would be so hard to pinpoint which, you know, what would actually happen. Like it's just, it's such an open-ended question because Rome for better, you know, for European history, is quintessential to life. Rome is European history. Right. Like, quite, quite literally. Yeah. I mean, at least ancient or not even ancient, classical European history. Do yeah, we yeah. see, with Carthage being the dominant power in the Mediterranean, do we see an increased level of trade between the Mediterranean region and the Far East? Because it's been documented that they're, you know, the Romans and the Chinese knew each other existed. Um, we don't exactly have serious sources on this, but it's been said that, you know, Roman envoys have visited China before, but there's not any kind of serious relationship. Obviously the Romans are getting silks and whatnot. Do the Carthaginians make a wholehearted effort to really invest in some far East trade because they are more so focused on their economy? I, I, I really want to tackle that question, but you just gave me like the most amazing idea ever. Like, let's take, like, Julius Caesar Rome, okay? Julius Caesar just became the emperor. He's at the height of his game. His army's whip sharp, like, and just like when Will and I play Stellaris, you're halfway through the game, and all of a sudden those black hole portals open up, and, like, Julius Caesar realizes that, you know, somewhere to the north is this unbelievable catastrophic threat, and he just calls up China, and he's like, listen, (laughs) <laughs> for the fate of humanity <laughs> talking about the I'm end game crisis yeah dude like could oh, you imagine if like rome and china either came to blows 
or fielded their armies against a common foe. That would be insane. Oh, real quick, Sam, can you look up a picture of the Chinese villagers that look like Romans? Because there is a story of a Roman legion or a group of Roman soldiers that, back in letter phrase, they wandered off and settled in this one village in China and their genetics became mixed with the Asian population that was there. And you can see, you can see the Roman in these Chinese villagers. And if you can find that photo, that would be it's like awesome. ethnic Han people who are also of Roman descent. Yeah. Interesting. I've never heard that. Julius Caesar's playing the long game. <laughs> yeah. Which but, I, I don't I, know if it's unpopular opinion or not, but I'm also more of an Augustus person than I am a Julius Caesar person. For sure. I don't know. I don't know how credible the Daily Mail is, but uh, <laughs> hang on. Well, it's, they're still you. They're all using this photo. Yeah, that's right. the one that I was thinking of. Would be that one. I don't know. Yeah, I'll just stay. I'll just zoom in on this one. We'll we'll do some digging into that, and like three podcasts from now, we'll remember and be like, oh, actually. Yeah. <laughs> We'll do but, our. Well, the original question was uh, the so, with Carthage in the Near East. I yes, think it, it would, the answer would have to be yes because they they wouldn't not do that at some point. Well, so my question is: Could the African nations have risen to a level of dominance if that trade continued south? Like obviously it's kind of weird to like think of Africa south, but like it like like middle and lower Africa, if you were to continue like trading and because obviously like some some very, very rich but relatively unknown history took place. Like it's not as if like those people were just like chilling. You know, like there were multiple instances of like fabulously wealthy African kings just like going on a world parade, you know, spending modern day billions of dollars just to flex on like us Europeans. Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, when you talk about richest person in history, you you mentioned John D. Rockefeller, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Carnegie. We we and now now we used to talk about Jeff Bezos. Now we talk about Elon Musk. Arguably, the richest man to ever live was Mansa Musa, who right. quite literally would go you know on diplomatic missions and simply just give away gold because that well, that, this is not worth estimated trillions, trillions adjusted for inflation. It's got to be. I want to put Julius Caesar up there too, because if you take his gold and also factor in the, the value of his slaves and the land that he conquered in his name, he, right. he asked, he also has to be a trillionaire. Well, Sam, can we get a Mansa Musa net worth? Yeah, pretty sure can. Bill Gates is a trillionaire too, with all those prison workers he's got. <laughs> <laughs> Hot take, we're not ready for. Who? No. It comes up immediately. Uh, zoom in on that puppy. Four hundred billion, impossible to pin. Okay, richer than anyone could describe. His I mean, celebrity so, net worth. <laughs> celebrity net worth. <laughs> oh my gosh! But like again, like you can throw out a number like four hundred billion dollars and be like, yeah, but that's not a trillion dollars. But like. We have no concept of what like a billion dollars looks like, like yeah. physically represented. Most, most regu- like 
we we have no con we as regular people have no concept of what a billion dollars looks like like the difference between we, we had this conversation ben the difference between someone making a million dollars a year or who has a million dollars in a bank account and the difference between someone who has 90 million dollars in their bank account is staggering and what what options are available and that's just 90 million we're not even close to we're like we haven't reached into the hundreds of million dollars yet yeah, I saw a video a couple of years ago, and I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen so you can see this real quick. Uh, share screen. Okay, entire screen. Oh, I think I know what video this is. I'm not well, gonna share the video. You're sharing. Um, Will, I don't know if you have thoughts, but I will say, you know, with your with your question earlier, Ben. Yes, I do think if the Carthaginians are the main power, we definitely see um african empires continuing to become richer and richer and uh developing even further than they were because there are yeah, many women. places in africa at this point that were highly developed you know in some respects one. technologically advanced okay. so I, I definitely think we just see that keep going yeah that and that'll be true for any any civilizations that maintain contact with carthage because they you know if you compare them to rome rome acquired its wealth and prosperity through conquest and Carthage acquired its prosperity through trade and mercantilism. Destroying cities and eliminating empires would grant a negative net gain for Carthage. So yeah, would the world be a more peaceful place with Carthage? I don't know, man. Like, you'd still run into interesting situations like what would happen if the Mongols encountered the Carthaginian Empire? Mongols sweep, yeah. Mongols four and sweep the floor with them. Easy <laughs> four and up. Well, and again, like I'm not, I, I'm not saying that that Carthage would be able to field an army that could beat the Mongols. Like if the Romans couldn't do it, surely Carthage couldn't do it. What I'm saying is, would Genghis Khan do that, or would he just show up and be like, "Hey, I want some of this." Like, I, like again, like because. I don't believe it would be Carthage as a military power being like, you can't come in here. They'd be like, sick horses, bro. <laughs> Can you give us some of those? I think the Mongols would do even more damage to Carthage than they would do to Rome. Because all you have to do is just take out a few pieces of the Carthaginian trade puzzle and the whole thing falls apart. Because that's part of the reason why Carthage began to decline after sort of losing these wars was a breakdown in trade. And if Carthage can't trade, Carthage doesn't have money. It's like the blood wouldn't be flowing in your body and just parts of it would begin to die off, seek independence, probably start civil wars. I mean, you could go on and on about what would happen. And all it would take yeah. really is a few, like one, maybe two major trade hubs in the Carthaginian Empire to cease flowing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's looking at, you know, Carthage is practically an oligarchy ruled by wealthy families. I mean, that's even what their quote unquote Senate was comprised of it's it's not it's nothing like the roman senate where you're a senator and you're you know elected i guess if we're going to call these you know because not everyone's voting but you know you're elected to the senate and whatnot based on you know you having that knowledge and being from a prominent family and whatnot the carthaginian senate was simply founded from wealthy individuals i mean if you were a rich family you played a hand in the delegation you know so it's it's I think what Will says is absolutely spot on. You know, if you're an oligarchy, like you, you need that money. You, you got to have that money flowing like Rome, even when they were poor, even when they were struggling, starving, 
people were willing to fight and defend the idea of Rome because Rome was civilization. You know, they, they fought for the idea. They fought for their beliefs, whereas Carthaginians just fought for more money. It's the importance of citizen soldiers mm -hmm. instead of just hired thugs. There's Which, just three, uh, three doors down song dying to be played right now. <laughs> That's a joke. Some of our younger audiences might not. <laughs> can't believe we're old enough to say something like that. Yeah. Man. Especially uh, with old bones. I'm the old, I'm the old on the podcast here. Not for long. Check this out. <laughs> terrible. Brutal. It's too much power. Terrible. Brutal. Uh, is yeah. this why He's we drunk with power. <laughs> um, I've reached the no, end I mean, of my useful life, apparently. There is a fun fact about the Punic Wars that I neglected to mention earlier. If you take okay. into consideration the mobilized manpower of all three wars put together, on both sides, it's over a million men. A million men. After this point, there wouldn't be another war with a million fielded soldiers until the 16th century. And yeah. the Romans and the Carthaginians were doing that more than a thousand, like 800, 900 years before that. That's how advanced that these civilizations were. And you can look at charts of, uh, I think it was, it was CO2 emissions in Rome yeah. or like in Southern Europe. And they peak during the peak of the Roman Empire. And then you can see the Dark Ages as the emissions go down. And then they're not going to go up again until the Industrial Revolution. 100%. Yeah. Uh, there's two things I want to, I kind of want to circle back to the Punic Wars for a second. But also, you know, when I studied genocide in college, like again, super, super fascinating topic and just like a tragedy. It's an interesting word. Uh, Morbid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, it, again, it has it has this almost sick draw to it, where like you're like it, it's 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 something that's horrific, but something that you want like you know from a moral standpoint, you want to prevent and learn about so you can like stop. But also like you know it's a it's a unfortunately fascinating aspect of history. But the the modern consensus is genocide was impossible before the 18, 19th century. Um, and it was just because to truly commit genocide, you needed the capabilities to actually decimate and commit a genocide. And it just wasn't a, a realistic possibility. The only, you know, historical, you know, argument over that is Rome. Like Rome was in a position where it was mobilized. It was capable of going out and theoretically committing genocide like what they did to Carthage. And so now with that, just fun little fun. Back to Carthage, the third Punic War was essentially a siege on the Carthaginian city. And, you know, this is a fascinating facet of history for me because, again, like we, we kind of like have this preconceived notion of what people were capable of. And then when you were like, you know, I wish I could go back and see the walls of Carthage, like Rome besieged a city, like just one city for three years before they were able to take the city. And that's in part because Carthage had the most formidable defenses in the ancient world. Their final set of walls. And Justin, you you've read up on this a little bit earlier, more recently than I do. You remember the uh, the measurements of that final wall? 
Oh, the walls are, uh, they're like 30 feet wide, you know? So, I mean, if you're thinking from the front to the back, you can have lines and lines of men. And in terms of height, I mean, I don't know. They must be, I don't want, I don't really want to speculate. I know that they're definitely at least 30 feet deep. So, uh, all right. Fat, uh, quick, this one here for, put me in coach. Um, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Oh, no, you, okay. yeah, you get it. I can read it off. So the Wall of Carthage had it was about 18 miles, 46 feet high, and 34 feet thick. Damn. Um, okay. Just, just think about for a second the fact that this happened, that Rome broke into these walls to the point of breaking through these walls. And so they they're never even broke through. in. They never no, even they, broke the walls. They, there were accounts of this, and the reason I know this is because what Carthage did when they were at a point of like damaging the walls to the point where the wall does need to be re repaired, because portions of the walls were hollow to allow troops, and like there were barracks built into these walls. So like troops were inside these walls living. Like when the Romans were getting to a point where they were in like you know theoretical distance of breaking in, the Carthaginians would shove a war elephant through the hole they made. <laughs> and collapse rubble and then start fixing the wall from the inside and so like again these walls that like human Wild. beings are breaking their bodies against and battering ramming and hitting with ballista and catapults are 36 feet thick and 40 plus feet tall for 18 miles like again like we could not build something like that today um, Dan Carlin had an awesome bit in one of his podcasts about the Greek and Persian wars where a Greek army had to flee from the Persians and they camped outside of the deserted Assyrian city of Nineveh. And they're like literally sitting there and like talking about how like giants must have built these walls because they were 50 feet tall and 30 feet thick and they could, they didn't know how to build stuff like that anymore. And so I'm like sure that knowledge. Could. I'm sure we could build it, but you know, it's just, it's, the whole point is we can build it now because we know what we know and we have modern technology. The fact that these types of construction projects took tens, if not hundreds of years, you know, untold Lifetime. amounts. I'm sorry, what? Lifetimes. Yeah, well, lifetime. I mean, people would live and die before these things even finished. You know, you imagine you, you're born, you grow up, you're a grandfather and you tell your children, you know, like, I may not get to see this wall be finished, but you will. And maybe they don't even see that. It's, it's the fact that people were so committed to building these gigantic you know, civilizations. I mean, pretty much. Literally, the only thing we in modern day society have to compare it to, it's not even really a fair comparison, is like Elon Musk is talking about putting a colony on Mars. Like, that's so far away, but people are working on it. Like, there were people who, I'm sure when we when we start going to the moon, it's like, hey, one day there'll be more people in space. Well, it's been solid 60 years before we're now just launching civilians into space and people have lived and died before we've actually gotten any further than that. This gives yep. me a great That's idea the for the third of episode. Building their walls. Ooh, what is it? If we're going to be colonizing Mars, then we'll eventually be building cities on Mars. What happens when the first human being is born on Mars? Are they an alien? 
We'll, we'll we'll circle back to that. I like this topic. I I got more. I got yeah. More. I got a I got a lot to say about that. That is a oh, huge dude. And I got I got I got more to stimulate more of your questions too. That, like, that, so, that jumps into the whole like who do they identify with? Do they identify with Earth? Do they identify with Mars? All right, we'll save we'll save all that for the we'll next save video, that because this, yeah. this is good for sure. I got to be on that one because that one that requires no historical background. I'm yeah, it's there. all it's, it's all going to be conjecture. You just got to be educated and form your sentences correctly, and people believe what you're saying. <laughs> uh look at us right now man we don't know jack um no but it's it's such an interesting again like we have become accustomed to relatively quick payoff or relatively quick success or relatively quick engineering and so it, it is a fascinating thing to think about like the Great Wall of China was built by hand by hundreds of thousands of workers over lifetimes. You know, the pyramids, like all these engineering marvels and the ways that like, you know, people with far less access to resources, far inferior tools, like it's, 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 it's compelling and interesting to see what human beings are capable of when they had to do it. Cause you know, like Carthage had heated plumbing, heated, heated water running to their city, but, they had to otherwise people would die like they had to have access to clean drinking water we take it for granted but we're about to pass a what 17 trillion dollar infrastructure bill one of the things being 1.7 like, 1. 1.7 okay my bad either Move way we'll one, see man. if it we'll see if it passes metric f ton of money and one of the po points on there is millions of americans like in america don't have access to clean drinking water millions of people you know, crazy and, to think about. well, and like 2,300 years later than the time we're talking about, like crazy, you know? So go ahead, Justin. No, I'm just going to say a lot of that is, it goes back to, you know, humans will do what needs to be done and they, they will simply adapt to the circumstance and Carthage needed heated plumbing. They needed thick walls. They needed clean drinking water because you're keeping 300,000 people, which if you think about that, I mean, a 300,000 person city in the 21st century is still absolutely massive. So yeah. if you think about that on an ancient scale, they did those things because that's what they needed. You didn't see, you know, after the fall of Rome, you didn't see the Merovingians or the Carabingians or any other kind of Germanic tribe, you know, coming up with heated plumbing or clean, you know, creating some access to clean drinking water outside of just running water because they didn't right. need to, they didn't have cities, you know, Carthage, Rome, these ancient civilizations, they had this conglomerate of human life in one place in one grand standing city. And they needed to do those things if they wanted to uh, perpetuate their civilization. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Justin, what you said just made me think maybe Europe, how do I, Carthaginian Europe would remain predominantly Carthaginian until the Merovingians and the Carolingians came along. And what would that be like 400 AD? I think so. Something like yeah. that. I mean, we're talking about Charlemagne or Charles the Great, depending on who, what's, what school that you subscribe to. Well, that, so that would still be hundreds of years of Carthaginian oh, population. Charlemagne is, is 700s, you know, so even right. still Merovingians come first. If we're talking the 400s, that's a, I want to try to not deviate too much because we could even say if Rome doesn't become Rome and it's Carthage as the dominant power to the care, to the, the Merovingians even 
have a template or do they have a base plate to base off what they're doing if they don't have a roam? But all of that aside, you know, I think you're entirely right, Will. You know, eventually at some point they will form, whether it's around the same time or not. And they will start to do some of the same things, but maybe their interactions with their surrounding powers are going to be entirely different. Well, and so I want to say like, you know, and I was listening to a Dan Carlin podcast about this. Eventually the Gauls and the Celts and the Germanic tribes started to beat the Roman army because they were in proximity to Romans for so long that they started to pick up elements of their military elements of their, you know, how to, how to have like baggage you know, trains and how to get supplies to your armies. And as you learn these things, you can get better at combating someone who uses those things. If you took the army that defeated Rome in 400 AD or, you know, whatever, does it beat a Carthaginian army with different composition of troops with different ways of fighting? Like, Again, like you're talking like Numidian horse archers, light cavalry, like di- a different composition, a different army set, you know, like as a horrible example, use the, I'm pretty use sure this. The, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I would say I'm pretty sure this was a, a show on the History Channel. The uh, do you remember the one where they uh, would put fighter different? We're going to mute Sam. <laughs> History Channel. Yeah. The. Um, Ben, the answer to your question is no, they would not be able to because the Roman military was centralized and they had a specific doctrine that all legions adhered to. The Carthaginian military, because they primarily because of the fact that they used mercenaries, was decentralized. You have these people from over here and they fight that way. And then those guys from over there, they fight this way. And so they would, the the barbarians in question would have to deal with all these different people who have all of their own unique fighting styles and they would never be able to adapt from a singular source of combat experience. That and the fact that the barbarians do not have a navy. Right, yeah, I'm gonna have to agree with Will, absolutely. The only way I would disagree is I would say if they had some sort of central authority or central military power, because it's a tale as old as warfare, it's a tale as old as time, it's adapt or die. The Romans fight the Greeks, they adapt the phalanx in order to you know best the Greeks. They beat them at their own game. The Romans are fighting Carthage. What do they do when they're getting bodied by Numidian cavalry? They hire Numidian cavalry. When you're talking about barbarians fighting the Romans, it's not like they necessarily develop some sort of legion, but they do start to copy and employ some Roman tactics. Um, it's, it's adapting to your enemy and utilizing their own strengths against them. Otherwise, you will fail. So, yeah, I would absolutely have to agree with Will. There's, there's no way without some sort of central power saying, hey, look, this is how we're going to improve, how we're going to best our enemy. There's no way they beat Carthage. And sure. that's not to say that other powers actually did try to mimic the the legions. They're called imitation legions. They are real, and you can look them up. And we could have a whole different discussion about if you take um, somebody from the Africa, no. take somebody from no. Africa, you put them in Roman armor, give them Roman training, give them Roman weapons, have a Roman general lead them, and they will never be as good as authentic Roman legions. Why is that? 100%. Because they're not Roman citizens. I mean, in Roman society, even when you live under Rome, and I don't just mean the city, under the blanket of Rome, you know, you are not a Roman unless you are a Roman. Um, And even when they start to expand certain voting rights, like, 
if you're not a slave, but you're not a Roman, you're caught in this sort of societal purgatory where you you don't necessarily have a place. And so right. if you are not, you know, from the Italian peninsula or you are not what is considered a Roman. You are not going to fight with the same heart, with the same uh, zeal that a Roman would when he dons the legionary armor. You know, you give him a gladius. He gets the training. You're not going to fight for that because you don't believe in that. And you don't believe in that because you're not accepted. Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like we just kind of opened a can of worms on a good potential other topic is like, you know, what makes militaries and what makes great powers what they are. The nation and state. So much. The nation state is a huge component of it. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, ideological differences and the 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 environment you grow up in are so key to what you what you, what your worldview is what your ethics are what what you believe in to the point that you're willing to die for and you know i think we go on for another hour and a half talking about that uh, as we get it into kind of our final final minutes here are there any other big questions big uh, big holes in the carthaginian empire anything that you guys want to brush up, brush up on i want to pose one question I'm going to throw back a little bit to Ben, you, and Will. Sam, if you have any thoughts, please, by all means, I'm more than ready to hear them. We talked about what would happen if Carthage bests Rome. Carthage is the main power. Kind of went off on our tangents there. To talk about um, tactics, stratagem, everything like that, specifically two of arguably the greatest military minds of the time, um, we could make the argument for all time, but you know, for, for this time period specifically, we're talking about Hannibal, Scipio Africanus. Um, are these two, is it coincidental that, you know, Hannibal is born and is a incredible tactician and Scipio is just the younger version, you know, arguably he's not nearly as good, but is still a great general. Is it coincidental that these two men are of the same time period or are they born and molded out of the uh, ferocity of the Punic Wars? You know, are they basically creations of the time? If Hannibal and Scipio didn't exist, it would have been somebody else to do the exact same things. Okay, that's a good point. I am going to cop out and make a, a reference to comic books. And uh, it, it's it's uh, I, I wasn't sure which universe, but it's it's the Marvel universe in the in the in the cinematic Marvel universe. They're talking about the Sokovia Accords and like why superheroes shouldn't exist, and the reason why their logic was ever since you superheroes showed up on the main stage and started you know you know winning battles and glory and doing all these amazing things, the number of supervillains has gone up exponentially because now people have a challenge and they have someone to like fight, right? Like, you know, is there a Lex Luthor without Superman? That is, is there the, a Joker the vision without quote, Batman? That's a vision quote that uh, their right. very existence invites challenge. And that is a, uh, a sentiment shared with Batman. Sorry, we can talk about comics. I'm, I'm hopping. Right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> like, but that, that, that's the point, you know, like Scipio Africanus was so good because he grew up watching Hannibal burn his nation to the ground and, you know, dedicated his life to making him pay for that. And, you know, Alexander the Great, you can argue, you know, was Alexander the Great really that great? Or was he just, you know, in the right place at the right time, handed daddy's little, you know, empire crusher 
And the answer is no. Like, Alexander the Great is a badass, and he is that good. Um, but it's one of those things, like, you know, Rome needed that general. And if it wasn't Scipio Africanus, it would have been somebody else. Does that make sense? I think that's my answer. I think I would agree with Ben there. What did you say? I agree with Ben. It would if it's the environment and the history. And, like, you, you can't forget what these people have seen. And, I mean, I saw something just the other day that's not quite podcast appropriate that I'm telling you guys all about. But it's it's shaped me and it's changed me already in a way that I will never forget. And seeing something that's far worse than that, like seeing your, your country, Rome, burn to the ground. I mean, there wasn't just one person like Scipio. There was more people like him that saw this happen and nothing came of them. And their names are lost to us because... Scipio was the first and the best to actually do something about it. And those, all those other Romans who saw this happen and swore vengeance, you know, they just never got the chance to do it. So there was a cue, a line of sorts for, to take Scipio's spot. And I absolutely agree. If Scipio wasn't there, it would have been somebody else and we would be talking about him instead. If I can leave with one last thing to post you guys, is it, the men that make the times or is it the times that make the men is it great men and great women shaping history because of their feats and deeds you know basically fighting against whether it's fate or the powers that their empire comes to struggle against or are they simply doing the best they can in the times that they are born into and those circumstances you know practically shape themselves insert Insert uh, Gandalf's quote from uh, Lord of the Rings. Where's that? Uh, when uh, when uh, he, he in, says, uh, "I wish, uh, I wish it need not have happened in my time," and Gandalf says, "So do I, and so do all who live to see such times." So that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that's given. Mm, okay. So Absolutely. yeah, no, I mean Gandalf's a wise guy. J.R.R. Tolkien's a wise guy. Uh, Will, what's your take? I think that I could answer this by supporting the great man theory where mm. you have individuals who are just destined for greatness and the, the level of greatness that they will achieve will depend on the environment they are born in. Like if it's, if everything is just a rotten house and they're just waiting for somebody to just bust in and tear the whole thing down and structure it all up, like what Julius Caesar did to the, to the Roman Republic, then it's always going to happen. So the environment first arises and then that creates a situation where, where a great man or woman can come along and completely restructure everything in their vision. Yeah, definitely. I would agree I, uh, for sure. Okay. I, I heard a great quote and I'm going to, I'm going to read it to you. I looked it up to make sure I got it right. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. And uh, Dan Carlin talked about this. And again, shout out to that guy. Um, changing our lives. Um, but he, uh, you know, the analogy that he used was talking about the Gauls and like the, the, the Celts and the Germanic tribes and like how living next to Rome, you know, you would assimilate portions of Roman culture and they would assimilate the drinking and the luxuries. And now all of a sudden these, BA, Germanic, nomadic barbarians 
were starting to drink and to enjoy dancing and music. And all of a sudden they're not as sharp on the battlefield as they used to be because they got, they got the taste. Of, they got soft. Mm. And it's one of these things where like now behind them is a soft, but incredibly militaristic empire with highly advanced training and their capabilities. And on the other side of them are hard battle hardened, angry, you know, and they're caught in this transition phase. And so I don't know. I think for me, it's a cycle and you have to be vigilant because it's very easy for us to get accustomed to the way that we live and to what we have and what we don't have and to accept it. And, you know, for me, like, I'm not content to keep my security, my, my, you know, my being in the, in the hands of others. I don't know if that's like the direction you were taking it, but like, you know, there's, there's an element of self-responsibility, self-reliance that like is lost on a great portion of our, our population today that like, Hey man, like if you lose power for a week and it's winter, like You'll you die. can't go outside. Like what's going to happen? Like how are you? Well, right. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, you better start a fire. You know, you better do something. Will's telling the truth. You'll die. <laughs> You'll die. You'll yeah. Straight up. And then like, you know, even here where I am in Illinois, if you lose power in the middle of December, you will freeze. And right. where I'm from up in Minnesota, winters kill people. And those people have power. And now granted, they're geriatric or predisposed to certain illnesses or whatnot. But mm -hmm. even in, in the desert, in Arizona, if you lose power in the middle of summer, when it's 110 you'll degrees, you'll die. You'll die. <laughs> You're literally I mean, in just, an easy I'm just putting it plainly. You know, like we have a lot of amenities and the cushions of modern technology I, that propagate the near of civilization. I think he just called everyone over here living on the East Coast soft. Hey, I'm from Michigan, man. I know what it's like. Hey, we, we from the Midwest. I uh, I'm gonna close it with um, this, and uh, this is just a funny thing to add on. There's uh, there's an old comedian. I saw one of his skits on YouTube. And he was talking about the difference between the South and California, and he was talking about how in California the weather that they get in California that's considered like a catastrophe is just everyday crap to people in the south and he's like they were putting mudslides on the news in california saying people need to evacuate their homes run for their lives like you want to know how i know the south is tougher than california because when mm. mud comes to our territory we get out our trucks and we go play in it <laughs> you know like uh you know, he's not wrong no it, obviously he did a much better jo job setting up the joke and everything but it, it's that sentiment like you live on the West Coast in 75, sunny, balmy weather day after day, you get soft, you know, like that, that's, there's a reason it's so expensive because everyone wants to be there, but you, you start to lose that, that ability to like tackle challenge. I would 99% agree with that, except for when your state is on fire. Yeah, that's not ideal. <laughs> they, they're, they're still they're still going to work. You know, they just, you know, more, oh, yeah, morning, morning commute through the wildfires. Yeah, I guess that's the flip side of that, right? They'd be like, oh, they put fires on the news. Like, I was driving to work. You know? Right, 100%. Yeah, guys. Um, thank you guys for coming on the podcast again. Thank you for an awesome conversation. Um, check out Justin at On Point Financial Services, right? Management on point financial management. On point financial management. The we gotta get a plug. logo up there. I'm a sponsor. Sponsor. Uh, hey. Shout out to New Horizon Solar Solutions. Get solar. It's good. Uh, shout out to Sam. 
Keaton Company Real Estate. And uh, well, when you hang get on, a job, on. I'll shout you out. Any for museum is looking for a fantastic. I have a job, by the way. It's just not in my career. Shout out to Menards. <laughs> Hiring my boy. Menards, for, sponsor us. For compliance, Ben, I, I need you to pull the logo if you're posting this on YouTube. I also think I need you to pull my logo, unfortunately, now that I well, think well, No, no, no. No, you no, I, my logo has to show. Like if I say I'm a realtor, I have to at least display the logo of the brokerage for RAR compliance. So hang on. Just for compliance. Show my throw my screen up there real quick. All right. Uh I can't okay, cancel this. Add to stream. Keaton Keaton Company, Company Real Estate. Out. Shout out. There's a logo. Oh, no, that's not a good one. There's our logo, Keaton and Co. All right. Hey, look, it's clients taken care of. No, but, uh, but really, though, you actually probably will have to pull mine. Okay. <laughs> um, I will now learn how to Photoshop out uh, a blue line on American flag. So, <laughs> literally, just all, all you have to do is throw a smiley face on top of it. All right, guys. Uh, it's been a pleasure. See you guys next week. Of All course. right. See you I'm hopping off here. Thank All you. Right, bye bye.